0: Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to UrbanFarmMembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's UrbanFarmMembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444.
1: You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow-your-own-food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson.
0: Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Morag Gamble to talk about her experience with permaculture living down under. Morag loves living a permaculture life. She is a passionate permaculture teacher, an experienced designer, a permaculture blogger and filmmaker, a regular feature writer for the Australian Permaculture Magazine, and correspondent for the new ABC Living and Permaculture radio show. She lives in Crystal Waters, a permaculture village in the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast with her husband and young family, who she homeschools. They designed and built their Echo Home without going into debt, collect all their own water, deal with their own wastewater, and produce their own power. Morag loves teaching from her gardens. In this educational space, she leads her natural kids programs, young ethos scholar programs, earth school camps for high school students, and the permaculture life education series for adults. Morag holds a master's of environmental education, a postgraduate diploma of landscape architecture, and a bachelor of planning and design. She has taught permaculture and community garden programs in over 20 countries over the last 20 years. She is the co-founder of the iconic Northeast Street City Farm in Brisbane and the Australian City Farms and Community Gardens Network. She has also supported the development of many school gardens, community gardens, and local food networks both locally and internationally. Welcome to the show today, Morag.
2: So I was going to say good morning. (laughs)
0: It is. Um, It is a good morning. Absolutely. Although it's afternoon here. And well, hold on.
2: I again. Sorry. I'll just say, can we just say, yeah, good day.
0: Oh, no, no, this is great. I'm talking to you from the future, right?
2: Yes, that's right.
0: Because you're in Australia.
2: (laughs) Yes, I keep forgetting the time difference between us. I'm talking to you in the past and... And uh oh, that's... Yeah, my my kids think that's absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I shared a bit about you in your bio. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now?
2: Sure. I I'm living here in an in an eco village, a, a permaculture village and I I feel like it's kind of a natural place for me to be based on I suppose my upbringing and the path I took through education and the and the mentors that have inspired me along the way, I actually grew up in sort of on the edge of a city in a suburban area, but it was a really green and, and natural place. And my parents were really focused on ethics and in environmental justice and natural health, and all of those things kind of infused through my upbringing. I was, when it was not cool to be a vegetarian, I was uh-huh. the kid at school with the, you know, the, and uh, natural health, you know, I was the kid with the, the black bread with the home-crushed peanuts scraped on
1: the bread. Right. Or yeah. Um,
2: and I spent most of my childhood, I suppose, just playing out in nature where it was a suburban area but there was a lot of open space around and a lot of uh, creeks that you could go down and explore the tadpoles and we had chickens in the backyard and a little bit of growing, but it wasn't really a a main sort of permaculture farm or anything. But Uh in the the summertime and all the holidays, I spent all the time down in this lake system and I just absolutely loved being out and being free and just being connected to nature. Uh And so I think as I grew up, I started to see some of the damage that was being caused and some of the things that were happening around me and feeling really, I suppose, deeply pained by Mm, that as an, as an adolescent. And and I think that in some ways started to activate, you know, well, that activism in me that wanted to go, well, hang on a tick, that's not right. And and as a teenager, I ended up starting to get into things like various sorts of environmental protests and, and, but also um, peace rallies too, because at that time, I mean, I'm, I'm 47 now. So at that time, there was just the birth of kind of the Green Movement in Australia. There was a big protest down around some beautiful rivers trying to prevent them from being dammed. At the same time, there was a lot of conversation around nuclear war and the threat of nuclear war. And Uh and also, similarly, in the early 70s, there was a period in Australia and probably in the States as well, there was a an oil shortage and so yep. there was a lot of conflict Absolutely. around that and so all of these factors I suppose were around me and shaping my thinking around well well if not that then what um but it didn't it took me a while to really get to that point I sort of was in that that sort of rebellious stage as a teenager first saying you know stop the chopping of the forest and stop nuclear
1: mm-hmm.
2: um you know Whole, all of those things. And I, I remember getting to a point when, I don't know, I uh, talking about that for a long time, and I would just see people start to glaze over, you know, like, oh, here she goes again, you know. And I, I realized that after a while that people don't really necessarily want to hear what's wrong all the time. Right. And it was a re- a, 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 another part of my upbringing was also about finding positive solutions. And my dad was always talking, you know, let's not, let that get to us. Let's find some way we can move forward. And and I guess that sort of came through. And I started thinking, well, well, if not that, then what? What if we, if we, you know, if we want to find a way to right. not have to stop uh, chop all the forests or dig up all the uranium or create conflict, what sort of society are we trying to actually create? And yeah. what do we need our society to look like? Right. <clears throat> Which is where I sort of started to head out on a on a bit of a pilgrimage around the world. Uh, sort of at the round university age and I, headed, I ended up in a place called Schumacher College in in England where <clears throat> it was a gathering place for amazing thinkers. And I got to that point because I was inspired by um, a guy called Fritzhoff Capra, uh, a scientist, um, an author. He wrote the Tau Physics and the systems view of life and he was talking a lot about the ecological paradigm and all of a sudden I started to discover there was actually a language and a whole body of work around the way that I was thinking and feeling and and so I I just I got I was halfway through my university degree and I Uh in I was doing landscape architecture and environmental planning and design and I and I just stopped and I said "I, I think I need to go to this place over here so I I sold everything I had and the even the university was really supportive they they said look if you go over there we'll pay you up front to come back and lecture about it back at the university oh, wow. which, is, which is it was an amazing thing uh-huh. I, and i think that kind of started my my role as an educator too because nice. you know that thing about immediately going over and coming back and sharing and i and i've tried to keep that pattern always going but But unfortunately, I got there and found out how amazing it was and didn't come back for a very long time.
0: (laughs) So hold on, hold on here. Where was there? That's what we got to know.
2: Schumacher College was in England. It's in the south part of England. It's this. No, but
0: that that was the first place you started. Where did you leave there to go to?
2: Oh, I was at um, I was at Melbourne University doing landscape architecture. Ah,
0: Very good. Yes. That's in Um, the heart of permaculture.
2: Yes. Yes. And so I um I I got to this place and I I started to really cha- fill my mind with all the ecological thinking that was the foundation I think for where a lot of the permaculture is at and um, and I came across another woman <clears throat> called Helena Norberg Hodge who who um, who spent a lot of time in Ladakh and was talking about these. Sustainable communities, and you know, on the other side, the Himalayas, and something about what she was speaking about drew me across to go and volunteer with her. And uh-huh. uh, so, so I had this kind of filling up of my head with where all sustainable living needed to come from. I had, I, then my heart was filled with the possibilities because living out in Ladakh for. about six months and actually seeing how people lived and understanding that you could live really deeply and connected with nature, that it wasn't just this fancy ideal that a lot of people were telling me, oh, that's just, you know, that's not real. We live this way. And so all of a sudden I started to see, well, actually it is possible, you know, like the thinking's there, the actuality's there. Uh And I started to come back and go, well, what do I do back in Australia? How does it fit all of these ideas and all of this way? And that's when I started to bring back my um, interest in, in permaculture. I, oh, my dad had always had the books out ever since they were first published, and I'd heard permaculture all the time. And but it really wasn't until I guess I was ready for it that I launched into yeah. it. And so when I came back to Australia, really inspired, I found that that became the platform, I suppose, to be able to really practically implement all these ideas. So it was the there there was this beautiful connection there between the head heart and finally the hands of okay now this is how to do it so that's kind of a little bit of wow how i came to be where where i was so and where i am
0: (laughs) yeah and you live in a really really cool place someplace i've fantasized about living for a very long time tell us about crystal waters
2: yeah i've been here for about 18 years now wow it's I I can't believe. I, I can't believe it's actually been that long. I remember getting here so excited, and I, I was telling my friends, oh, I've been at Crystal Waters for three months now." I was <laughs> <I'm so laughs> really excited, and now, yeah, eighteen years on, I'm still as excited about it, and I still absolutely love being here. So it's an eco village. It's um, there's about 250 people who live here. It's designed on the principles of of permaculture, the uh-huh. the way that the landscape is set out, and it's you know embedded in our community ethics. Um, and each of the households that's here is designed in um, in that way too. So, for example, um, just the way that the landscape is laid out, it was just um, all of the best agricultural land was set aside first, so that none of that was built on and all of the northern slopes, for us down here in, in, um, in the Antipodes, it's, it's kind of the north slope is what you want, of course. Right. Uh, so we were, we were um, all the houses are, are located on the northern slopes because that gives good access for the sun, for um, naturally solar passive homes, but also your active solar systems and uh-huh. growing really good food. So right. every house is, is built in, in the right spot from nice. the outset. And then all the other slopes are used for woodlots and and forests and most of the land is being regenerated. So the principles of permaculture are just, you know, I could keep talking, every single part of it has been designed and being evolved from that basis and the principles of permaculture. Um, and then within that, we ha- so we have 83 households here and that takes up only 14% of the land. We have each of us... Have about one acre as a family. That's that we own as a freehold uh-huh. title, and that's only yeah fourteen percent is privately owned. And then eighty percent of the land is common land. So that's all of our forests and all of the dams and the the, the river that that flows around the edge and all the roads and all the infrastructure is is a common property that we take care of together. Right. And then there's a six last little six percent of the land is is managed by a, a community cooperative, which is. The organisation which helps to support the social and economic activity mm. of the village. Wow, yeah, and there's all ages that live here, from newborns through to I think the one of the eldest residents is almost ninety now. Um, I think at last count there was sixteen different nationalities. We have um, people coming continuously from around the world to stay with us. So even though we're, you know, in the in the countryside. I don't at all feel isolated. I mean, we're only an hour and a half from Brisbane, the major capital of our state. Right. So it's not that far out of the city, but we just have just amazing forests surrounding us, and it's a beautiful natural environment. Um, But just getting back to the visitors from around the world, Mm -hmm. we get woofers coming from just everywhere. At the moment, we have a wonderful guy from Colombia, and. I homeschool my kids, so it's it's a great way. So kids don't have to go to geography class. Every time a <laughs> right. woofer comes through, we're yeah, exactly. learning about a different place and a culture and, and they're studying Spanish so they get to have, you know, real hands-on conversation or right. practice with people. And and I think for me too, one of the fantastic things about woofing and about being in a place like this and having people come continuously is that sharing of knowledge and ideas oh, that, yes. you know, it's you know, one of my favorite sayings is when you're green, you grow. When you're ripe, you rot. So when you think you know uh, everything and you become yes. the expert in the field and you, you're constantly just espousing stuff, you actually, um, you know, forget to keep your mind open to new possibilities or new information or new ways of doing things. So I, I constantly see myself in a process of being green and being the novice and and in that way just always love to meet new people or hear different ways of doing things or yeah. another way to use a plant or, you know, there's, another way to ending. build a structure and at yeah, yeah. The, the moment I'm getting very excited because um, one of the things that I find a little bit challenging, like we're really good on the food, I produce all my energy here, I produce all my own, um, I collect all my own water and I process all my waste on site and I probably use about, less than a one person house of energy in terms of consumption in a normal household and right. less than ten percent of the water consumption of a standard household all those things you know I've done that really that's 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 fine but um you know transportation is our issue out here, oh, we don't yeah. have any public transport, and so we're right. quite dependent on on cars. So, one of our little projects, and I've been talking to people around, and as this, this idea is bubbling up and it's, it's becoming one of my son's homeschool projects. Oh, nice. Is, yeah, yeah, is to, um, we're going to get some plug-in electric vehicles that are solar powered. So we're collecting solar panels at the moment and finding some electric vehicles that we can connect it all up to. And, and at least within our local village, because even within here, it's quite healing. And it's seven kilometres from one end to the other end oh, to wow. try and at least get cars out of Crystal Waters. So the young people can use bikes, but right. you know, people who are getting a bit on sort of find that a bit challenging. So either having electric-powered bicycles or electric types of cars that we can plug in down at the village and then have another point up in town, which is our local town, Mullaney, which is a fabulous place in and of itself. It's got amazing co-ops and organic organic food co-ops, co-ops and a local bank and uh-huh. all these sorts of things to have set up something maybe in front of the local bank up there that you can plug in and get back home oh, again. Nice. <laughs> anyway, exactly. so this is uh, starting to bubble up new ideas about transportation. I, I love that thing about this there's, there's always a new possibility, always something a new boundary to explore right. or a new new way to actually make the way that we're living even even more sustainable. So yeah. I wouldn't say that, you know, we live Absolutely sustainable. But we're always thinking about how we yep. can do it better and, and make changes and and as we're going through it, you know, also share that out again. So every step yeah. along the way we're sort of trying to bring as, as many different people and ideas and communities along along the way with us. Yeah. It's great fun. <laughs>
0: Beautiful. So you mentioned a term several times that I want to make sure that we touch on. You said woofers. And
2: oh, woofers, yes. So for
0: those listeners that don't know what that is, will you share that? Sure. Woof. It's
2: not got anything to do with dogs. It's willing <laughs> workers on organic farms. And it's an international movement of people who uh, – I have joined up as a host. Right. And people join up as travelers. And so essentially uh, you can – people come from all around the world or even the local community and work – for about four to five hours in your garden or in however you'd like them to be involved in your property uh-huh. uh, in exchange for food and accommodation. And so there's this whole tribe, I wouldn't say a tribe, but almost a yeah. nation of young people traveling oh, yeah. the world learning about sustainable living by woofing. Yeah. Because they, as long as they can get from one place to the next place, they don't really need to spend any money when they're here and they're they're, they're learning and they're being looked after by a family mm-hmm. it's, I think it's just a, a it's beautiful. fantastic yeah. a fantastic way to be able to travel and also to be able to learn because it's the kind of stuff that you don't learn at university oh I, yeah exactly I, I went through <clears throat> excuse me I went through landscape architecture school and honestly I didn't touch a plant. While I was at landscape architecture school, right. I understood the form of a plant and I knew intellectually about how high it would grow and how wide it would be and what color it was. But there was nothing about
0: Interactive. actually
2: how to grow it or
0: yeah.
2: whether whether any parts of it were edible. There was nothing about any of that when I went through. So I think that's changed somewhat now. Um, but, you know, it's it's the learning that happened after university for me by actually sitting down with people in a garden somewhere, in a farm, in a village somewhere, talking, and sharing, and watching, and experimenting is where that knowledge about how to create really successful permaculture or polycultural systems um, happened. You know, it's not yeah. something necessarily that you can study. I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the permaculture courses and everything are absolutely fantastic, but mostly they're great at sharing about what are the best questions to ask and how you can explore that idea more and how things start different ideas start to connect um, you know to get some basic skills that you can go out with but it's it's then what happens after that right is where the real education begins yeah. I think too
0: yeah exactly yeah. so one of your questions that you sent over was that you've created a debt-free permaculture based way of life at crystal waters can you talk about that because that's for me, that's a really important concept to get across to people.
2: Mm. Oh, you know, as a as a young person, I I started when well, I graduated from <clears throat> from university, and you know, the thing that you're meant to do then is is go and get a a job. Yeah. And so I I tried to do that, <laughs> and I just felt absolutely devastated in in that environment being inside the whole time you know supposedly doing sustainable environmental work but really seeing that i wasn't making much of a contribution so i i I felt incredibly stifled so i i left and i decided that i would create my own work um And what that means is sometimes you're earning some, and sometimes you're not. And a lot of my work is also voluntary work, and so my income has always been, you know, enough but not massive. And there was absolutely no way, in order to build a house, that I would be able to get a loan. Right. So I, from the very outset, as a young person, I decided that I was going to create, um, I was going to build a house, and. And set myself up, but without borrowing a single cent. Wow. And, and so we just, my husband and I, we would just go out and we'd do some work and we'd bring it back, we'd just put it back in. So we live incredibly simply,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, and, and find ways to just, you know, generate our income through the things that we're passionate about mm-hmm. and just put that back into what we're doing here. And so over a period of 10 years, um, we built a house and what we call buildable affordable modules. So the first part of the house was basically a one bedroom cabin and we lived in that for a while until I think child number 2 was getting to a point of you know starting to burst the seams of the room and uh-huh. then and then um and then child number 3 was on its way and we thought right <laughs> time for buildable affordable module number 2 right and um so we now have uh, some connected pods on our landscape that are all part of a bigger picture so we had them mapped out in our mind to start with but so we'd save and we'd save until we got enough to build the next one and we built it simply we built it by ourselves Um, by building it by ourselves we cut uh, the cost in half Um, my my dad would come and help us he was actually probably one of our main building advisors he's not a builder but he's always been really practical and he he built his house in in Melbourne and So he was kind of our mentor for that. Right. A lot of local resources and Mm -hmm. local help. And it was fantastic. You know, it's such a beautiful thing to be in a place and know every single detail. You know, a lot of people in the permaculture world have that same feeling because they have, I understand, you know, many people have built their own homes, but if you have you know what I mean you can look at it you can look at a post and go oh I know what forest that came from and
1: right. and how
2: that's all put together and the yep. sense of, of sort of meaning and purpose in in actually constructing thing something from scratch like that is, is just fabulous so it's it, it takes also the home out from being a commodity it's not just a, a home that's well I'll I'll do this to it I often hear people talking about a house well I'll I'll do this to it because I know that in the future when I sell it, it'll be good for the market value. It's, a,
1: uh-huh.
2: it's not about the market value; it's about living here as a family. And a, and I, I kind of set the way that it's set up too. I have decided that it's it's an expanded home so that you know when the kids grow up, they can have their own little bit and they we can shut off and separate the house again. Oh. We've kind of connected it with a walkway, but we can right. disconnect it with doorways. So you can have different generations living here. The kids my kids are now 10, 8 and 3 mm-hmm. and they've already decided which bits they're having and which bits I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nice. the little bit up the top. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. we we've just we kept going and we have I have a little office space that's separate from the house and uh-huh. which where I am now and um, so the the kids, because we all work from home and and we we homeschool, so we need those separate spaces too to be able to all operate together. And yeah. and then I have a little cabin that I've built right at the very top of the block where where guests and visitors and woofers come to stay. So they have their independence. And um, to fantastic, uh,
0: I'm on my way.
2: <laughs> Great, I'm
0: on my way. So for those of us that can't build a house, I'd like to speak to a little bit about. It's really about living more simply, right?
2: Essentially, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, what if for for those of us that in the United States that really can't, you know, go about building our own house? What might that look like?
2: Well, for me, I think it's firstly it's about looking at, um, you know, how much how much money we're spending. What sort of things are we buying? Whether we could, um, you know, quite often I was just writing a little blog post about this the other day. I read some research about it. You actually go and spend if you take cash. If you use cash regularly, you spend twenty percent less. Less isn't that amazing? Yeah, just simply by that because you're more aware it's in your hand. Yep, if it's in a plastic card. It's sort of well, you're not really keeping track of it. Right. Um, so that was that was one thing. Another thing was, um, you know, I really I choose to to always shop in my little local town rather than heading off to a major big box shopping center because. It, it's without doubt that you always come out of those places with stuff you don't need,
1: <laughs> stuff yeah.
2: that's not really well made necessarily, and it will break quickly. So
1: mm-hmm. I always
2: try and find if something that I need, if I can't get it secondhand or I can't share it with someone else, then I find a really good quality one as locally as possible, so it supports the local economy. But yeah. So there's, there's, you know, not going shopping for the first, not having shopping as a hobby, right? <laughs> I, yeah, you know, that's a big was, thing. It is a big thing in our culture. I remember growing up, every Friday night, we'd head off down to the local shopping center and we'd just cruise around and look what was there to buy. That was our Friday night and it took Mm -hmm. me a while to actually get out of that as a, just a, now when I go into the big box shopping centers, I feel completely overwhelmed with the the, the sounds and the sights and, and, you know, actually having a three-year-old is a really good excuse not to go into those places because they just become absolutely wild and overstimulated and and it becomes an incredibly stressful thing to do. Right. So uh, I love going to my local town because everyone knows you right. and they and they know the kids and they all have little kid toy spots set up so you can have a chat with people while you're getting your hardware or while you're getting your local veggies. And, and that's a really nice thing to do. Yeah. But, you know, one of the basic and obvious things too is growing growing as much food as you can. I You know, I've surrounded my house you know walk straight off the veranda and there you know there's all the salad greens and the herbs and vegetables and fruits and to be able to just roll out your door and forage for food (laughs) isn't that nice yeah but do it in a a simple way i love i love the kind of the polycultural gardens where there's just so many um, perennial plants and self-seeding plants that yeah, we live in the subtropics here, so there's always something growing. Yeah. And it's just a fabulous thing to kind of discover what's coming up. We'll mm-hmm. Focus on really building up the soil so that there's always something self-seeding and you know, you're wandering through round past the bananas and then you discover, oh my gosh, look, there's a passion fruit coming up out of there. And, and yep. you, it's this sense of wildness that it is a cultivated ecology. It, it has become yeah. an ecological system. It looks after itself and through growing in that way I, I literally would spend a maximum of five minutes a day I think doing maintenance work and spend most of my time just enjoying the garden and
0: harvesting and
2: harvesting that's yeah. right yeah. Um, so it's a it's become an absolute delight um, and it's a I think it's a great example too and I really focused on doing that because a lot of the things I hear people say about well you know well if I I, I, if I had more time, I could do some gardening. Or, right. and so what I've tried to show is how you could garden an abundant garden and have, you know, little time, little water. And I, you know, I actually don't water my garden from day to day. It's a rare thing to actually water it. I, I've i really focused on the soil and collect, mm-hmm. um, collecting the rain and, and redirecting runoff from anywhere that's, that might be coming down into the garden planting appropriate species too not expecting to grow things that might grow in melbourne or you know in a different climate in my climate yeah and learning to to like different foods or different parts of foods i mean just as a simple example you know that a pumpkin the pumpkin will just in and of itself start to sprawl out across your garden now the pumpkin um, leaves are also edible. The pumpkin shoots are edible. The pumpkin flowers are edible. and wow. So you don't need to wait until the actual pumpkin itself is ready. Uh-huh. And then once you, once it is, you can obviously, eat. you know, you can eat the skin as well as the flesh and, and the seeds. One of our loveliest snacks is to actually just wash off the pulp of the seeds yep. and put it in a sandwich press and toast them <clears throat> until they're – and that only takes a minute and then put a little bit of tamari soy sauce on it, and it's just a fabulous oh, nice. um, treat. It's so nice. And then if you, you walk through your garden, if you have carrots, I mean, the young carrot top's yeah. edible. If you've got beetroots, the beetroot tops are actually far more nutritious than the than the beetroots themselves. Um, oh, if wow. you're growing snow peas, you can eat yep. the pea shoots and the pea leaves and the pea flowers. Most of the flowers of all of the edible species, except for you know the solanaceae, the tomatoes right. and eggplants, exactly. they're all edible too. I and I, it's kind of funny. I had a group. I, I run this thing called the Earth School, which is a program for high school students. <laughs> where they where they come in and they and I, I'm walking through the garden, just foraging and eating and flower, and I just see the look on their face or the jaws drop as you're <laughs> just shoving flowers. And yeah, it's it kind of exciting though. The yep. other day I, when I had them up here, they were they started to say, "Oh, can I try that?" So here I'm handing out bits of mustard, spinaches, and garlic chive flowers and all sorts of things and they were tasting them and they got so excited by it. And one of the last things I did was run a a program to teach them how to propagate so that if they Mm, ever see any plants that they want to propagate they could just take a snip and and do it. So I sent them home with a whole bundle load of plants. I actually think that one of my biggest products out of my garden, apart from food for myself, Uh uh, well two is one is education. I've set it up as an educational garden so I've tried to create a space that will inspire people to go yep. home and do it themselves. But the Perfect. other one is um, is cuttings. I go and do a lot of community education work and I load my car up with as many cuttings of plants that I can possibly fit. So I think in the last year I've given out ten thousand cuttings of edible wow. perennial plants. Wow. Um, as I've done the talks and just said, look, you know, right. here's the materials, you know, come up at the end of the talk and I'll snip it up as I finally as I can into all different cuttings, take it home, plant it. On the proviso that when it starts to grow, you're going to invite share. Invite people to do the same. Yeah, you know, just exactly. Keep them going out. Growing food doesn't have to be an expensive thing if we right. if we share and we teach other people how to do it and and become knowledgeable. Because I think you know we've kind of lost a lot of that. I, you know, we think if we set up a garden, we have to buy expensive yep. edgings and buy in all the soil uh-huh. and buy all the plants, and before you know it, it's thousand dollars or more. And then you you know you, you might not tomato. grow a few. Let, yeah, a tomato or, or a, you know, a cabbage gets eaten and people go, oh, this is so frustrating. So yeah. I've kind of tried to bring it back into really simple strategies of how to create gardens using all natural recycled materials, mm-hmm. even without edgings Beautiful. and um, without without having to spend a lot of money and then creating, you know, an absolute abundance. But it's abundant thinking that I think we need to work on, yeah. not just the physical abundance. Because there's so much that's around us all the time, um, both in uh, well, there's ideas, there's people energy, there's natural resources, waste, waste is a huge resource in our societies. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, how much do we throw away every every year? I've set up my little carport as a depository for the local community um, to put in things like newspapers, milk bottles, egg cards. I mean, we have a little cow cooperative here at Crystal Water, so I actually don't buy much milk. I, I like to use the milk containers. I chop them in half and turn them upside down, and they become my um, self-watering pots for propagating right. up plants. Exactly. Um, and so I, I ask everyone rather than putting it in the recycling bin, look, give it to me, and I'll Reuse use them. It. And I, yeah. And I, I, I go down and I run workshops for kids, and I send them all off with their milk bottle gardens and, <laughs> um, <laughs> and the egg cartons too that I. I um, I make them into little seedling trays, and I do that with the children too. And and whatever I have left, I feed to the worms. And and because I have chooks, I don't have egg cartons either. So I have I ask people around the neighbourhood to use my carport as their depository, as and a, oh, a newspaper. Nice. Yeah. I don't buy newspapers because I you know get all my news. Yep. I I I subscribe to um, Good News, which is you know all the online permaculture uh-huh. right. type of things. You know, it's kind of an interesting way to think about, you know, it's good to hear what's going on in the world, but it's also good not to fill your brain with all the sensationalist bad news Garbage. all the time.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And so I, I've i avoided getting newspapers, but except for the ones that are the second hand used ones that I collect in my carport and use as mulch in the garden. Nice. It's one of the biggest things I, I I like to do is to actually put them down. I sort of loosen the soil, put down compost, then I put the newspaper on top and then the mulch is my weed barrier. Right. It's kind of no dig garden mm-hmm. but turned on its head. I one of the, most people put the newspaper on the ground and then put compost on top. But I really think that the soil organisms would much prefer to have a nice feed of compost on their heads rather than newspaper. the newspaper. So I always put the compost down first and then cover it with the newspaper. And that way any weeds that are in the compost too just get smothered. So I yeah. I, I don't have a weeding issue in, in my garden. It just nice. takes it huge effort out of growing as well so yeah yeah
0: wow that's an, the,
2: the, <laughs> sorry the, I get a bit excited no when I, I, I love
0: heart-wise. it that's an amazing life you have down under yeah down under yeah. so
2: and then you know homeschooling the kids in amongst oh, yeah. all of that too and I and I just see that they they just know this stuff they just feel it and are it they're not going to have to learn about sustainability or or learn about about gardening, they're just no in way. it and yeah. do it and they feel it and they, I, I mean, I, I, they've they been listening, I guess, a lot to me as I talk through my garden with lots of groups. And it's interesting, um, they often come and help me do the tours now and uh, the other day they were, they were following around behind me and, and kept going, but Mama, you forgot to say about the... <laughs> <laughs> nice. They know the script now.
0: <laughs> nice. So, oh.
2: so then I hand, the, I hand the baton to them and, and let them... Yeah. Continue the conversation and and allow them to be teachers right from that young right. age because I think the earlier you start to share your knowledge and the more you speak it, the more it becomes you. You know, you understand it more if you have to right. have to share it. And um, we do lots of really great homeschool projects. I mentioned the one about my son. He does the oh he's, yes, he's he's getting into the um, making the the electric solar plug-in electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, he also started a. A, uh, a worm farmery because one of the things that people are really getting excited about is, is worm towers here. You know, embedding them oh, directly yes. into your garden. Yep. So he's making little worm towers and and bundling up worms to make worm starter kits, and he put them down at the um, our local Crystal Waters Market last month. We have a monthly market, and he sold out within half an hour. Oh, so nice. He's eight and he's got this fantastic uh, worm enterprise happening already. Um, my daughter, on the other hand, she she's passionate about cooking and growing and yeah. So she started up a cafe, a pop up cafe at the top of our block. We clear out the carport, and oh, and so she nice. harvests things from our garden. She makes lovely garden teas, um, you know, uh, sugar free organic orange cakes and things like that. Basically, we've got oranges coming out of our ears at the moment. So she finds what's on at the moment and uses that. But she does it in a way that's a social enterprise and environmentally supportive so right. she she's passionate about um, species and um, species extinction and worried about that and so she what she does is when she earns some money she donates that money to support the protection of um, endangered species and uh, and then another proportion of it goes to doing uh, you know, like tree planting at Crystal Waters to help create a more koala friendly place, and <laughs> and then she keeps a little bit for herself. So she, you know, like she's learning maths and yep. she's learning, um, you know, design and yeah. all these different sorts of things through doing a really practical project like that. It's it's right. exciting to see, and they're just so. I don't have to be. I don't have to teach them stuff. I just they facilitating just their learning and yeah. pointing them in the right direction. Yeah. And you know, I, when I first started homeschooling, I was trying to do the teacher thing, and it was a battle. It really was a battle. But when I found, when I let go of my expectations, I suppose of what I was meant to be doing, and let them be the directors of it, it became obvious that you know how to do it. So I just follow their lead, <laughs> and then get up with a whole lot of extra direction and yeah. and um information point to it that, that they can find themselves and it's, it's an exciting it's an exciting way to live and I guess the fact is that having a debt-free way of life uh-huh. um, gives me the chance to do that because I can work part-time yes, exactly. um, to earn enough money to keep us going uh, and then spend and my husband does the same and so then together we tag team in the homeschooling and it, and it just works it's just fabulous
0: you know, a friend of mine does something like this, but he's calling it something else. He's calling it unschooling.
2: Ah, well, there's, yeah, there's a, someone once asked me on a some Facebook thing, are you unschooling or homeschooling? And I went, oh, I didn't know there was a difference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I was then truly told the difference between it, that homeschooling here, the definition I think is meant to mean if you're, if you're being, you know, particular, it's where you have a curriculum that you follow um, we have something called distance education here right. in Australia. so you sign up to that you get a curriculum and your kids are on the computer most of the day doing really. home school so school at home right whereas unschooling you're right it, it is actually probably the better term for it because it's it's not a curriculum the, the children are learning um, an amazing they they actually learn I think they learn quicker through unschooling yeah because uh, for example uh, one of the one of the projects that the kids were working on last last month, uh, last term, was a, a treehouse design. And so my my son was going, well, so how do I work out how long that piece of tin is if I need to have a slope of this angle yep. so that the water will run off into a tank? I want to collect water off, off my treehouse. Beautiful. See. And so then we had to start looking at different formulas uh-huh. and we went in and explored that. Now, that, that formula and that way of thinking is going to stick in his mind far more than if he sat and learnt the formula as an abstracted concept exactly. in the classroom. It's connected. And yeah. that's the key part of this is it's yeah. the connectedness and it's the um, it's the opportunity for them to really create very sound and solid pathways in their brain, I think, because it's everything they learn has many connections. So it really sticks far more. Right. Um, I'm so excited by it. I, <laughs> I hope that they continue to, to homeschool. Um, through, I I didn't actually choose for them to homeschool, um, although I wanted to. I just don't think I was brave enough to start with. I, they did go to a little local school, which I thought was great at the time. It had 85 kids for the whole school, and it was multi-age classes and all sorts of things. But they got to the point where they asked to be homeschooled, that they were really just wanted to come out and do this sort of way of schooling. Right. So, Beautiful. Don't ask me you about that. But
0: anyway. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna, gonna shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, and how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
2: Well, I think one of the things I've been trying to start recently is a is a farm, a educational farm here at the center of Crystal Waters, and it's still something. I mean, it's a sort of a, a recent failure, I suppose. Um, you know, I've taken a lease on the land, but the whole thing's been sitting there for two years. I just, I I seem to be able to be one of those people who just keep saying yes to every project that comes. <laughs> and I take on, so I, I literally stay up to two or three o'clock every night. Uh-huh working on projects and documenting things and preparing things. And then I get up, you know, six or seven in the morning with the kids and I do the whole thing. And I have so many ideas that some of them just flop, you know, and I'm learning to accept that that's not necessarily a failure. It's maybe just an idea that hasn't had its time yet. Yeah. So this, this farm idea, I'd set it up so that there would be a, it would be a place where people could come and be, interns or um, apprentices in permaculture so you've done your permaculture course now you want to learn some more come and live at crystal waters for a period of time and and explore eco village living permaculture we'll do sustainable building workshops mm-hmm. with all of these things i just haven't been able to get it off the ground <laughs> and i you know i but i'm still holding on to it of as, course as, 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 but, you know, I've parked it as an idea and yeah. not feeling so disappointed that I have failed at creating that. Because I, I was starting to get inquiries from around the world about, you know, can I come and be an intern? And I'd have to keep disappointed and say, oh, we'll start it soon, start yep. it soon. And, yeah. I, you know, it's it's just not. It's uh, a process.
0: Just,
2: it, yeah, exactly.
0: It's a process. It's a process. And,
2: uh, so I've, I've pulled back and just um, gone, okay, well, I have – I have the garden here. This is this is my yeah. farm at the moment, just yeah, on a smaller exactly. scale, and um, yeah, that's that's probably my most recent failure. Oh, there's lots of mini failures all the way of course, on but that's the how,
0: road. Yeah, but that's how and we're. They're
2: all, they're all learning experiences, yeah. aren't they?
0: Yeah, I, that is the case. Yeah. So, what do you consider your biggest success?
2: Mm. Well, I love. I love the garden and the house that I've been able to create here. Oh at, yes. In terms of it being an education and demonstration space too, of a pos, the possibilities that could be, and and we even got a little award for it being a you know edible oh, landscape award. Nice. I think my 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 biggest success would be starting up a place called Northy Street City Farm in Brisbane, in the heart of the city. It's a four acre permaculture farm right in the heart of brisbane nice and it's sustainability hub it's a place where people come in and learn about it's a an oasis you kind of step into that space and all of a sudden you're out of the city and in permaculture world you know and it just feels different and it is different it has a whole culture around it and it's a place it's the only organic farmer's market is based at that city farm um and it's so it's been going for twenty five years now almost wow and i my husband and I started that that place with a couple of other people. um It was the first thing we did when we finished our permaculture design course. We met up with some people and said, "We've gotta get a place started right." right in here i think that's the key thing about <clears throat> permaculture design courses is they inspire people to take action yeah and find ways in their local uh-huh. community that they can actually make a difference if it's not happening how can you you know activate something to happen right and, you know we started really small but this place we had a we had a really big vision <laughs> and it's amazing to go back now because like i said i've been up here at crystal waters for 18 years but the first four or five years of getting the norley street city farm started um were just so um just so important I think in the in in my education as well I was still in my twenties and i I came out of landscape architecture school, but I always thought landscape architecture from how I was taught it was about designing designing for people you know you'd you'd come in and you 'd design a landscape and it would be implemented right. whereas the community garden model and the city farm model is about designing with people. So instead of becoming a designer yes. I became a design facilitator and design educator and yep. I actually didn't tell anyone at that point that I was a landscape architecture architect because I felt that there would be that deference to the expert.
0: Yes. You know, yeah, oh well, you exactly. do you know what
2: you're talking about. So I kind of stepped out of that role and became part of part of that group and helped to kind of facilitate it in a way and and that became a really important lesson for me about how to activate communities, um, how to work with programs to make them sustainable, that if there were as many people as possible were involved in the development, the creation, the visioning of a place, mm-hmm. that there would be that deep and ongoing connection. It wouldn't yeah. just be, and I see it now even still when a community garden project gets started and it's designed by the council and constructed by you know, a local contract, and they say, "Okay, we've got the garden ready for you, community. Come and use it." And and they and then wonder nobody why shows up. it's no one's really turning yeah. up. And well, what's wrong yeah. with creating exactly. space for you? And it's a it's about that, yeah, a connection. Again, yeah. I always come back to connection. The more rich the fabric of connections are, and the more connected people feel to a place or to a process of being in being in a or connected to a community the more likely it is that it's going to be a successful yeah. um, project and, and and have a long life. Right. Yeah.
0: So what drives you?
2: Oh, I I think what I was saying earlier about feeling the the pain and the injustice of, you know, like I really it it hurts me when I see you know our earth being destroyed and it hurts me when I I see, you know, societies being you know, and cultures being dismantled and destroyed and 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 i I always feel like well, there has to be another way. What yeah. is another way that we can live where we're actually you know regenerating the earth and and restoring cultures the sustainability and what is that what does that society look like? And so it's that sense of I don't know hope and positivity. But based on that thing, like it's just not—it's right. not right. What's yeah. happening now? Why yeah. there has to be another way? I think is where I keep coming back to, and and uh, reimagining the future, being being able to see what is that the sort of future that we'd like to create, and then finding ways to move towards it, not just kind of randomly taking steps, or yeah, but just really being quite—I um, don't know. Working with communities to help create a vision for a better future, I suppose, is, and, and one where we're supporting the flourishing of earth systems and, and allowing, you know, all life to, to flourish in the way that it's meant to human and other. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, <laughs> perfect.
0: It's beautiful. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. And I'm all about education and I have to know, is there one book that has been influential for your life in this process?
2: Can I tell you a couple?
0: Please, bring it on.
2: <laughs> well, as I was mentioning earlier too, I, I, when I was, um, when I was about in my early 20s, I was starting to read, or probably even my late teens, I was starting to read a lot about sustainable ways of thinking. And, mm-hmm. and I came across Fridtjof Capra and his book, The Turning Point, I think was a turning point in my life as I yeah. was reading it. I, I, I went on a retreat by myself down to down to the lakes area in, in Victoria, and just took a pile of books with me, and most of them were written by Frichoff Capra, and I know, literally there were sparks flying out of my brain. I was at night time, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the room was lit by this this. There's just the sparks of connection happening, out of me. and I, I was, and then I kept following all the links that were in his books, um, and that that set me off on an amazing path. But another book that really inspired me too um, was a book by Helena Norberg Hodge called Ancient Futures and looking at how the how the um, culture of Ladakh was a sustainable culture and how mm-hmm. that worked and, and how they were so deeply connected to place and to community and to each other and, and the spirit of place, um, but then also contrasting that very clearly with um, what we're doing in the West, and what our way of life is doing to cultures like that, but I think that just the direct direct comparison yeah. showed me some of the the fundamental flaws in in the thinking and the assumptions that we have, and so it was a really clear comparison for me, uh, and also a way it helped me to really sort of shape some of the my thinking of the ways forward. So those two books, The Turning Point by Friedrich Kapper and Ancient Futures by Helen and Orberg Hodge, I think, were really, really formative in in my um, yeah. my way of thinking.
0: Beautiful. So, what one final piece of advice you have for our listeners?
2: Oh, I I think it's you know always always be open to listen and to learn you know to to be that you know to be green you know like I said before when you're green you grow and when you're ripe you rot. So, to stay green and to listen, to learn, but then as quickly as possible to start sharing it and to yeah. do it, and to teach it, and to write it. And I think as much as possible that we can share out the positive vision and invite people to share it with you that, you know, you don't have to be the expert before you start sharing. Yeah, big that time. You can you can bring people along on that journey with you. Um, Yeah, so listen, learn and, and just do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with, today, with us today, Morag. It's been a treat chatting with you.
2: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Greg.
0: Oh, my gosh. This has been a delightful conversation. So how can our listeners find out more and get a hold of you?
2: Um, I write a, a little blog called Our Permaculture Life. So that's our-permaculture-life.blogspot.com. Okay. Uh, and so I, I kind of share stories of my life on that, But I also have a, I run a, a not-for-profit foundation called the Ethos Foundation and ah. that t- shares all the different sorts of programs. I, I run permaculture life workshops for adults and nature kids workshops and young Ethos scholars for young leaders and a whole range of things there. And it also talks a bit about um, crystal waters on that site too. So that's ethosfoundation.org and all my contact details are on those two sites.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to UrbanFarmMembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's UrbanFarmMembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444.